Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, a podcast by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Check out the DGA website at dga.org and hover over the Craft tab to watch or listen to hours of content such as past episodes of the Director's Cut, videos of the Guild's 75th anniversary celebration, and long-form interviews from our visual history program. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Eugene Jarecki's new documentary, The King, which explores the legacy of Elvis Presley 40 years after his death by taking viewers on a musical road trip across America in his 1963 Rolls-Royce during the 2016 presidential election. Interviewing a diverse cast of citizens, both famous and not, along the way, Mr. Jarecki uses Elvis's rise and fall as a metaphor and takes a penetrating look at the status of America. The King was screened as part of the DGA's documentary series, which aims to spotlight groundbreaking nonfiction films for DGA members and guests by presenting screenings of documentaries as well as conversations with their directors. In addition to The King, which earned a Golden Eye nomination at the 2017 Cannes Film Festival, Mr. Jarecki's filmography includes the feature The Opponent, the documentary feature The Trials of Henry Kissinger, and the television documentary Quest of the Carib Canoe. He is a two-time winner of the Sundance Film Festival Grand Jury Prize for Documentary for his 2005 film Why We Fight and his 2012 film The House I Live In. Following the documentary series screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Mr. Jarecki spoke with director Marilyn Agrello about filming The King. During their conversation, Mr. Jarecki discusses how the political landscape affected the development of the documentary, how he secured Elvis's Rolls-Royce, and his notion that a good documentary happens to you when you're making a mediocre one. Well, thank you so much for this incredible uh, meditation on so many things. Uh, I'm, someone in, somewhere in the midpoint of this film says, uh, we become worshipers of things that uh, don't deserve being worshiped. And it made me think how Elvis is really like the quintessential American story. But this film made me realize not exactly the way we used to think of that. Yes. Um, and thank you all so much for watching. I mean, I, you know, for me, there was an evolution over the course of my life from being a young person growing up in this country who, you know, my, my parents are, my father was a refugee coming from Nazi Germany and my mother's family had fled, had fled the czars of Russia. So we came here because of the American dream, you know. But if you're a sensitive person and you come here and you're not just... Um, you know, leaving your sensitivity at the door. You have to be aware that, you know, it's an American dream for white men and that for everybody else, it's a more complicated story. So in a very fundamental way, as I grew up as a, as a child of that, you know, I was pointedly aware that my life was supposed to be about, you know, the advocacy for human rights and the trying to make the American dream real. And, you know, and it's majestic in what it also represents. It's just that... If you have uh, love and you want to show real love, I think it's tough love. 
So tough love requires that we ask of ourselves that we live up to our, 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 the better angels in our nature. And uh, I think there's greatness in the American story, and Elvis was always at the center of that because I had a nostalgic sense of the 1950s. There's really embarrassing photos of me in high school trying to dress like Elvis, and, you know, I did that like anybody. And I had a sense of him as a fixture in that time that seemed like it was so great once upon a time where the cars were, you know, candy-colored chrome machines and the, you know, the sky was so big and blue, all that. So I, I had that. And... Um, but I also grew up in the in the age of of modern media literacy, so I knew about Chuck D. and I knew about America's crimes against everybody but big white men. So I understood that, and I understood therefore increasingly that he was a, a very complex figure for me because I love him, but I understand how the system destroyed him, and I also understand that in my love of him. There have to be caveats about what he represents, um, and that that was always kind of on my mind as something to explore. You know, one thing that was very interesting for me was, uh, to me, Elvis has always been this, uh, he was immersed in black culture as a child. He was surrounded by black culture, and he really drank from the well of it. And I never realized that um, he would be resented for that. Mm by black people. And you know what Chuck D said and what others said about um, how he sort of stole that, uh, that was. But I think you have to be very precise with it in the way that I, th I think Chuck is, because you know it's a, it's a back and forth discourse where two things can be true. And for example, um, I think Chuck does such a great, he's a, he's a national treasure, Chuck D, he's an international treasure. And, and when I went to go interview him, I didn't know that he'd complicate matters so much in such a beautiful way, beautiful complexity. But the complexity, for example, that when Elvis is that age where he is a white guy willing to play black music in the 1950s, he's a hero. I mean, that's what we think of as the beauty of American or global culture, that we should all eat each other's food and play each other's music. The world would be a lot more peaceful. So he's a hero in that regard, in that um, we'd want everybody to be like that. So that ain't racist. In fact, to say that that's racist is racist, in my view. I think it's wonderful that he did that and that he had the courage to do that. You could have been lynched for doing it. So then comes, well, where's the racism? This hunt for the association of Elvis with racism. And I think the symbolic role that Elvis plays as such a case study in the black community being denied heroes and the black community being rather forced to worship white heroes um, and the theft of black music by white industry. I mean, all white industries steal from black people. It started when we started stealing black people, and then it just continued into a culture of disrespect. So I think that the white music business steals from black people, and once again, Elvis is sort of instrumentalized as a, as a, as an, as a tool in that, as a case study of that. But again, I don't believe that his role in that is racist. And I think when you then get to the real charge of racism for Elvis Presley, which is even Chuck D puts it in very careful language, both in the film and in our interview, what he's really saying is we understand how the black community was there for Elvis. Where was Elvis when the black community needed him? And I'm not an apologist for Elvis, but I do think you have to give everything uh, the context in which it happened, and you have to be aware that you not apply 2018 wisdom to 1956, for example, people have said Eminem does a much better job of balancing his whiteness 
in and around the black community and the music community and the African-American culture than Elvis did. Well, yeah, he has Elvis as an example. And as Emmylou Harris pointed out, Elvis had no example. And this is a country that kept slaves shortly before that. So on the long trajectory of what Elvis was able to process, I find Emmylou Harris's testimony so important because that idea that it was all new for him goes further. He's a country boy. His manager, the most important person in his life, has made a Faustian bargain for him with the U.S. government where he's being feted as this, you know, John Lennon said they not only gave him a crew cut and cut his sideburns in the military, but they seem to have cut off something else. And like the way that they emasculated him, he gets back and what's he supposed to do? I mean, I once tried to get a, everybody loves Johnny Cash and I love Johnny Cash and everybody always says, oh, I like Johnny Cash more than Elvis. Well, I tried to use a Johnny Cash song in a film I made called Why We Fight. And Roseanne Cash, you'll notice is a producer on this film because my effort to get that song gave birth to a beautiful friendship between Johnny's daughter and myself. But Johnny's son blocked the use of Johnny's song in my film. Why? Because he said, there are soldiers fighting in Iraq, and my father, though he would agree with your film, would not want his song used to critique a war that's ongoing with soldiers in the field. So this is, he's wrong in my view, but he's the son, it's his prerogative. And at the end of the day, I don't think that's the right role for artists. I don't think they're supposed to stand by and let lives be cost for some complicated explanation of why. But Elvis was at the beginning of all this. This is 20, 2006 that John Carter Cash is blocking that <clears throat> song from my film in the name of his father. We're talking about a 19, late 1950s time frame. And Elvis is making, in my view, in the 60s as well, a choice to be too uninvolved. And I wish he had been more involved. We should all learn that and be involved now. That's what we have to learn. If we're not doing any different today, if we're all watching Emma Gonzalez and her comrades stand on TV and stare down the NRA while we kind of enjoy neoliberal lives right. that where we do more talk than act, then what was the last serious protest we were involved in? What was the last strike we were involved in? When was the last time we threw our bodies on the gears of the machine? Because we have nothing to say to Elvis Presley in a 1960 time frame if he's doing exactly what we're doing with so much knowledge 60 years on. It's true what you say about applying the knowledge we have now to that time. And, um, you know, I think about um, Elvis. Elvis is sort of a cautionary tale in a way to me. Um, I, I believe he was a, a sort of, there was an innocence about him, but, um, you know, his life was a, a a great success, but also many lost opportunities and many bad choices. And I wonder, in the context of this film, is that sort of a metaphor for all of us, for you? Yes, I mean, you know, I once had a conversation with Jerry Schilling, and it, it's, which is Elvis's best friend. I had many of them, but there was one particular conversation where in one of the many times where I was ranting about capitalism's destructive assault on democracy, because my whole career has been an effort to defend democracy from what seems to me the obvious campaign of destruction that capitalism represents against it. And I think we're near total success in capitalism's hijacking of American democracy. And I don't, I don't name the current occupant of the, of the Oval Office, but he who shall remain nameless is the poster child of what it looks like when you allow a democracy to be hijacked by the prerogatives of capitalism. You end up with a non-public servant, a private thief, rapist, 
chauvinist, sexist, in, in my view, someone who delights in the suffering of others. It's not his fault, he should just never have been put in that position and the society got to that point. And it got to that point because we ignored the canaries in the coal mine over time, that cautionary tale that Elvis was supposed to represent. So I said to Jerry Schilling one day, it seems to me that what the Colonel did to Elvis is the same thing that capitalism is doing to American democracy. And my entire role in the world right now is to try to get America and myself to go to therapy about the power and the money and what it's doing to us. Because this is a country that broke off from the King of England saying no more kings and queens. Look at how many people just watched the royal wedding or watched the crown. If the framers came back and walked into your living room and saw you glued to the crown or glued to the royal wedding, what the hell did they dump all that tea in the ocean for? They could have just drunk it and stayed British. So. When I spoke to Jerry about Elvis and the colonel, I said, well, it seemed to me that the colonel destroyed him just like capitalism is. And he said, listen, I agree with you about capitalism and democracy. He's a very smart guy. And he said, but you should understand that Elvis loved the colonel like a father. He wrote it to him in a letter. And he loved what the colonel did for him. Sure, he took 50%, but he took 50% of the stratosphere. And he wanted that. He wanted to be Elvis Presley. He wanted that money. Linda Thompson talks about dating him and what it was like to try to be intimate with a person where every 30 seconds somebody is coming up to him and saying, I want to be with you. And how is he supposed to have any organic, normal relationships with that? So what Jerry said to me that was so haunting was you have to understand that Elvis was both victim and free will elector of his own seductions. And that's where I think it's metaphoric for us. The relationship between Colonel Parker and Elvis is a relationship between ourselves and all that we do that destroys us and that represents a seduction to which we fall vulnerable. And the real art of living is in getting control of that. So you aren't just an animal like any other in the wild that is simply driven by the impulses that are non, that are immeasured, that are just reflex impulses. So in Elvis's case, we were supposed to learn a long time ago from him that if we could, if this thing could destroy Elvis, if it could destroy a thing that seemed to represent such a blue sky set of hopes and aspirations, then where the hell are we going with this? You know, Lisa Marie Presley, on the day that her ex-husband, Michael Jackson, died, wrote a blog about the parallel between the death of her father hmm. under excess and the death of her ex-husband under excess. And sort of said, what are we doing? And these people are the, if they die for anything, it's supposed to be to teach us to go to therapy. Because he's seduced by those things and he's electing it. It's both. I mean, we, listen, we were all told of the people, by the people, for the people, the separation of powers, um, checks and balances. I mean, Jeff Bezos makes $1.2 million an hour. And Amazon did not pay federal tax in 2017. So fuck yourself with your of the people, by the people, for the people, until that is not the case. You cannot tell me that's a democracy. I won't tell my child that's a democracy until it actually is demanded to be one. But this is a seduction we've all fallen into. And if I sound dire, 
I'm actually incredibly inspired with optimism right now. That may not be evident, but it's in the backdrop of this darkness that I've become enormously optimistic because of what I've seen on the watch of he who shall remain nameless. Something has happened that's sort of seismic. I, I agree with that. And I think in some ways, he who shall remain nameless has given the world a fun? Gift. It's a really fun parlor game. <laughs> you is. can play it with your friends. <laughs> you don't allow that toxin into your life for a period of time. And then we can serve the tennis ball rather than standing always with a crazy person with a ball machine set to crazy. It's like a break. Okay. I think he's given us a gift because he has made us all so aware of things and activated so many people. And yeah. I'm curious um, how far into the production of this film the election happened and well, how did it yeah. change the course of things? Well, I was making the film uh, you know, long before any election and long before Voldemort decided to run for office. The idea was just, oh, I used his name, I'm so sorry. Um, but the idea was just we were on a film that would have been largely the same film, mm -hmm. right? No healthy democracy would have come even an electoral college manipulations away from this outcome, even a Russian stone's throw from this outcome. That it was remotely close tells you so much about how far gone this is and how much it needs our urgent attention that I was making that film. And then we started driving across the country in late 2015 and already the murmurings were there, so I start driving across a country, and it's like some sort of Roadrunner cartoon where the ground, the country's being torn asunder, so the ground is literally opening up in front of the car. Now, the country's being torn in half, so we don't know, do we turn right, do we turn left? Red state, blue state, purple state, how do we do this? And how do we do it without just playing into, for example, he who shall asked, his people asked us in New Hampshire, when we were covering the New Hampshire primary, whether I would allow him to go in the car. They didn't ask it that way. They said he wants to go in the car. The question became, will I allow him to go in the car? And I didn't let him go near that car. But the idea was that I had to start dealing with his incursion. And when election night happened, friends of all persuasions, because I'm not a Democrat and I'm not a Republican, I find them both hijackers of my democracy, so it's not my peeps. And I was sitting there on election night, and people after people called me friends. What has happened to the world? Where is this going? How could the place I believe in, how could the office that I am supposed to have my child look up to, now be occupied by an unapologetic pursuer of private gain? How can that possibly be where we need to be with the planet on fire, with multinational relationships so complex, with security issues so complex, with international justice so complex? I mean, so many issues that'll now get worse. And they all said at the end of each call, they said, but it's going to be great for your movie. This macabre thought was built into almost every conversation. And I had to start processing the idea that we were headed for the con film festival with the film. I was wrapping up an edit, it wasn't the final. But I knew I'm about to put this film out and I had intended to make a love letter to America and a love letter to Elvis, a real love letter that says, I love you, I love you, this is what you gotta work on. You need to go to therapy about this power and money thing that's destroying you. I end up, we go to Cannes and I'm standing at the stage after the first premiere and I have a feeling of tremendous dread that what I instead have just presented is an autopsy for the American dream. Because if my metaphor holds true, then it would appear that we had died on the toilet. 
And so I stood there, and I had to answer questions like the man with the autopsy in the toilet. And that is not what I wanted to do with several years of my life. I have children. It's not an inspiring perspective at all. You must find me very inspiring tonight, but I wasn't back then. I was grim. And then what happened? Between then and now, I had to keep editing the film and to deal with, because the film had been firebombed by the electoral outcome. It was shocked like everybody was shocked. And maybe as a document of the moment, it's quite powerful in a weird way. But it felt, the film felt deeply uncomfortable. And what I've done ever since is to make it into the feel-good film you watch tonight, is to essentially be affected by the incredible developments that have happened in the last year on his watch, namely Me Too, Time's Up, the Parkland students staring down one of the most evil institutions in the history of man, the Sanctuary Cities movement by mayors defending immigrants against a fascist movement by the government, um, the incredible uh, vision of teachers, even in red states, striking to get better conditions for those who educate our children, the poor people's movement, for crying out loud, Black Panther and Wonder Woman. We are watching incredible developments in the public commons and among private people. Did anyone watch the Swedish girl who would not let the Afghan man be uh, deported on her yes. flight? Watch it, show it to every child you know. Show it to every person you know. Did anyone watch the vandalism of the man who wanted to destroy Trump's star on the Walk of Fame? I had to use his name, right? It, these are acts, whether you agree with vandalism or not, I gotta tell you, that's dumping tea in the ocean. Mm -hmm. That is what democracy looks like. May not look comfortable, you may not like, like that could be an out of control law and order problem, but better that than this has been democracy in my view, and then we'll deal with, okay, let's do it in a proper tone of voice, use your words. We'll get to that. But it seemed to me that a year ago, the film had been deeply affected by that outcome. And I'm hoping that it's more reflective now of the majesty of those in it to suggest how change and how democracy come from people in, in really engaged ways. I'm not sure I answered your question, but I got that off my chest, so there no, we are. I mean, there's just so much here. I think it's a good time to open it up. Yes. Yep. Um, Did everybody hear that? Did everyone hear that? Um, was there a part of the filmmaking process I liked more than that where I really felt this is it, this is the core of the thing, and this is working? And then secondly, are we going to be showing the film in parts of the country um, that, are, that had maybe voted for the current president or, or the, sort of the classic red state um, crowd? Um, you know, as much as possible, but not enough uh, because of the way the media business works and the way my small distributor, you know, is sort of, there is a bit of a, there is a bit of a, um, of a bias that you have to overcome. First of all, just getting audiences to see this film is challenging. It's an extremely well-reviewed film, and I think audiences that see it are very powerfully moved by it, and there's a lot of word of mouth, but theaters are so also affected by capitalism. That, for example, we were the highest screen, per screen average film in America the weekend we came out, a couple of weeks ago at the IFC in, Center in New York and at the, the Landmark 57. And by Sunday, they had all moved us to a tiny room. It tells you so much about how to break through 
with serious fare. Now, there are a couple of wonderful films out right now. The Ruth Bader Ginsburg film is wonderful. The Mr. Rogers film is a masterpiece. And to take nothing away from them, I can barely fill a room compared to those films. And I'm very confident about what this film means to the current moment. In fact, if I'm honest and without being arrogant, I think it means more to the current moment than those films. But this country has been inclined in a way away from deep substantive analysis of ourselves. And so I realize it's inconvenient in a way that it deals with things the way that it does, but I'm unafraid of that work because that seems to be the work that leads to real democracy. Whereas even though I love Mr. Rogers and I thought the film was beautifully made, it kind of just says we've always been right and the other guys have been wrong. It doesn't say what do you need to do different inside yourself. And it's not a critique of that film, it's a perfect rendering of an amazing hero. In this case, the brokenness of this hero is ourselves. And so getting out there to the red state crowds also has that problem. It's hard enough for me to get New Yorkers to see it. It'll close in a day or so at the IFC Center, and that's that. And its short, happy life was tremendously, in my view, anemic. And in other states, actually, strangely, it's incredibly well in places like Nashville and Memphis and things like that. Okay, but getting out to, you know, it's going to open Alabama. It's going to open all kinds of places in the country. But is there the infrastructure there that isn't biased against a real showing? Because what you end up with in those places is, you, I go down there, I travel a lot with the film, and it's like the one pocket of progressive thinking in the place. And I keep telling the distributor, get me on right-wing radio. I went on The Federalist last week and one of the best conversations I've had in the whole history of the film. So more and more, if I can, we do. Certainly when it becomes a non-theatrical property and I get to go out to schools and churches and community centers, and I've done that for my whole grown-up life, I've gone to hundreds and hundreds of places you wouldn't think I would show it. I showed Why We Fight. I started teaching at West Point with it. So I was a pacifist teaching at a military institution. We pride ourselves on that but this marketplace makes it hard. The other issue, so if you have any connections, we use them. Um, in terms of what I loved most, um, listen, I mean, there are certain moments where you just can't believe what's happening. And there's, oh my God, I didn't know that little girl. I'd never heard of her the morning of that day. And two hours later, she was in my car singing like that. And that was like word of mouth, led to this, led to that, led to that. When that kind of, you know, John Lennon said um, a lot of things, but he said, life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. And the good documentary, I think, happens to you often when you're busy making the mediocre documentary. And if you're not open to it, it'll blow right past you. And if you listen and if your team are sensitive, compassionate people, they'll find stuff. So in walks that little girl. So sometimes it was the serendipity of that. I didn't know Chuck D should run the UN. I just thought Chuck D was a super cool guy who was gonna do a great job saying Elvis was a racist. The idea that he would warp my brain and I'd have to go to therapy for years, I had no idea. So there's that. In terms of um, an oh my God thing that was a shooting thing, it's a very quick moment in the film, but I'll just give it to you in a, in, with all the pathos that overwhelmed me in it. And I had moments like that little girl started singing, and at one point she sang the Grateful Dead song, Sugary. And the contrast between her astonishing personal spirit and what is happening to the world, so the eyes of a dreamlike child set against the backdrop of the chicanery of all that's been going on, I started bawling in the car. 
And there are things like that where you just can't expect how your day is going to go. But I was at Elvis's uh, childhood home where the lady talks about Tupelo going to hell. So there they are living in Elvis's house. And we finish up the shoot and I'm on my way out. And as I leave the, the house, I look back to kind of take a last longing look at, I didn't know if I'd ever be back there, you know, kind of thing. How many times am I really going to do that? And uh, I notice for the first time that there's a for sale sign out front. And the for sale sign has a little picture of Elvis on it. It's in the movie in a very, one of the many very brief shots in this film. I'm sorry about that. And what does it tell you? You know, in the old days, in the America I thought I was growing up in, the one in the textbooks, the of the people, by the people one, if you found out that Elvis had once lived in your house, you call your Uncle Harry, the lady plugs in the switchboard thing, Harry runs into his shed, he taps out, he's good at woodworking, so he taps out a little copper plaque, he runs over, you put it up, Elvis slept here. That's, that was the America I grew up in. This is now in America, where within five minutes of learning that your house was once lived in by Elvis, up goes the for sale sign, because you might just get a tiny little extra margin for that, and that could be 12 months of formula for the baby. You know, it's, it's when, I, when I had that, and the corollary was in Vegas, if I may tell a related one, these are ones that you can never get across quite in a film. It was my la I, Vegas is a heartbreaking place to me. It's soul crushing on every level. To watch the way in which predatory forces have zeroed in on the pathways of greatest vulnerability of the human creature, and they're exploiting them, whether in sexual terms, in gambling terms, in drug terms, in alcohol terms, in carbohydrate terms, in dazzling lights terms, in consumption therapy terms, it's everywhere you look. And on my way out of the last shoot we did, like this last day, and I wondered if I'd ever look back at Vegas as well. But I knew I would. I've been there many times since for the, with the film. So on my way out, I pass a person at a slot machine. And the person is disabled. And uh, they're in a motorized wheelchair. And um, uh, I can tell this is a person who has had a lot of suffering. It's not a simple, uh, what is ailing them is not simple. And uh, they're in front of a slot machine. And at this point in history, slot machines have cut out all the illusions. They don't even have the arm anymore that you used to convince yourself you had a special knack with. Like bump it here, pull it halfway, wait a second, look around, rabbit's foot, gone. Now what you've got is just the direct acknowledgement that the machine is designed to take your money there's no skill involved. It's a money machine. And amazingly, at this particular one, what jumped out at me was that this machine didn't have a coin slot. Instead, what it had was a card reader. And there was a card that was attached to a lanyard on the belt loop of the disabled person who was in front of the machine. And the lanyard was running up, and the card was at the top of it, inserted into the machine, and they were just pressing over and over, and that was their bank card. And the machine was just directly sucking the money out of their bank, presumably until it's empty. And I just, I just walked on, you know, and I, the, the, the sole uh, pain of that is as deep as my amazement when Emma Gonzalez came on the TV was grand. 
And that's why I'm in this state of enormous, tempestuous possibility right now. Because what we're dealing with on a large set of levels is, you know, Bezos' salary is the same as that card in the machine, is, 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 I had a, is the same as the for sale sign, but set against it are the most significant social movements of my lifetime right now that we all need to be part of. Because that stuff is waking people up finally. So there were these moments, you know. Yeah, amazing. Yes. Yes. Um, well, we were making a film without a car originally. It was just a poetic reflection on Elvis and the country he left behind. And I knew in my heart, well, I wanted to go to several places that were milestones in his life where he'd once kind of uh, laid his head and uh, see what life was like or what people's thoughts were like there now. So I knew that. And then uh, one day, um, a guy on my team said he'd read online that Elvis's car was coming up for auction in Pebble Beach, California. Apparently also his plane was coming up for auction, but we quickly learned A, it was gonna cost millions of dollars, and B, it didn't have an engine. So you'd have to sit sweating on the tarmac in Arizona for a whole film. So luckily we didn't do that. Um, but we had to ask the production whether they could possibly allocate a portion of the budget and raise more to be able to possibly step in and buy that card auction, which we did, and we were successful. But we had to promise that it would be resold at the end, which also meant I had to not wrap it around a tree or drive it into the Grand Canyon, all things that almost happened. And were it not for Wayne Gerster, the road chief, we would never have made it out in one piece. And uh, so we did promise that um, we'd sell it at the end, and there's an amazing story. We did sell it. It's a crazy story that if we have time, I can tell you, but it's nuts. But along the way, it was an incredible magnet for people's curiosity. It was an amazing socioeconomic symbol and statement, and that was never lost on us. There were times on a street in Memphis, for example, it was clear to me that that car cost more than all of the houses on one side of that street. And to then watch people say, I've never seen a car like this, I've never touched a car like this, again, wasn't the America I thought we were living in. Like, I thought we were living in. I remember when the Plaza Hotel here mm -hmm. went up for some sort of privatization, and I remember thinking, wow, that was a place that a Ralph Cramden kind of working man in New York knew that if he really saved up and he really did well at the bus company once a year, you know, he could bring the wife there and, 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 and be the man for the night. You know, or I remember when Yankee Stadium, when I saw the ticket price skyrocket because all these stadiums get named after corporate monsters now, you know, the MCI this or the, the AT&T that, that now the ticket prices, they've knocked down one state, they put up another one and they make the ticket price so a, a, a father and son can't do the game anymore. You know, when all those changes started to happen, I don't think I quite did the math on how widespread uh, it's become, I've been in, you know, 45 states in the last few years, and I've seen them in all levels, and it's a staggering gap. Um, and uh, the car really brought that out, and then brought, of course, people into this beautiful space that had to do with Elvis, and this beautiful space of nostalgia, and occasionally they would understand, this is a weird car, because you could have done a Cadillac or something, but this one feels like the King of England, this one feels like something else, and I would say, well, yes, there was a lost boy king in this car, you know, and he, he, he died in this car, you know, he looked out the window and saw, he, I think he was always trying to get back to Tupelo, and the car kept going the wrong way. 
You know, one moment that really moved me that was sort of a metaphor for the uh, the lost America in a way yeah. was this little audio clip of Elvis. The possibly lost America. It ain't lost. It's just waiting for us. Yes. Okay. Hiding. Um, this Sorry. little voice of Elvis saying, if I could, something like, if I could find a wife and a yeah. baby, I would never leave that house. Something yeah, it was like very that. funny. You know, that, that, that little voiceover in the film... Um, I kept removing from the film and then putting it back for time because some things just, movie can only be so long, you know, and it's already on the edge of that. So every time I would take it out, man, it would find its way back because there was something about that innocuous little f fiber in the grand tapestry that gave you that, again, reminder. What would any of us do had we been presented th with these seductions? It's so easy to judge Elvis in hindsight but I don't know what I would do with all that place before me, all that power, all that money, all that sexuality, all that opportunity. And you can hear the loneliness sometimes. Yeah. The, those little clips were so beautiful. They really added such texture and such heart to who this guy was. He was so, he was so huge, but yet yeah. a sensitive small guy too. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Um, you know, I mean, uh, that there's always two answers to that question, you know. Um, uh, my, my life is one answer because you these films become real sort of bookmarks of your life and you couldn't have made it had so many other mistakes and, and, and moments not happened. So the, the smug answer is a long time, many, many years. But the practical answer is um, I started really preparing my thoughts in earnest 2014. And uh, I was going through my own midlife crisis at around that time and I discovered I was the same age Elvis was when he died. And uh, I had been making speeches to audiences around the country on uh, prisons and in uh, churches and in community centers with a previous film I'd made about the war on drugs. And in audience after audience, I, I noticed, Eugene, if you're not careful, these are working people whose lives are already unrecognizable to them. They've become a, a, a Kafka-esque maze of mortgages and dangers to their children and drug abuse and incarceration and and the rich getting richer and everything else. I mean, so if you walk in there as some comfortable filmmaker from the East Coast and you're going to say, oh, guess what, people? It's even worse than you think. It's an act of cruelty. It's, mm -hmm. it's tremendously unproductive, insensitive. So I started to think of ways to talk with audiences differently. We used to have long discussions. I would shut up and people would talk about their lives, talk about their lives, talk about their lives, things. And uh, like I would ask questions in, instead of the other. It was a A and Q rather than a Q and A. And then at one night I said, "My God!" I listened to all this and I said, "It's like we're the we've all become the the fat Elvis." I said, and I, and everyone kind of there was a big recognition over the room. I noticed that. And then some weeks later, and I said, so "We've become the fat Elvis," and they all laughed. And I noticed that I was onto something, and I started to say it more often, I guess. And that was 20, 20, That was actually in 2012. So between 2012 and 2014, I kept saying that thing. And then in 2014, a man came up to me and said, I was still touring with the drug film, and he said, um, is that your next movie, that, that Fat Elvis thing? An older man in a mill town, and I said, well, I, mean, I don't know. I'll, I'll let you know, maybe. Um, I love that you put in the, the, the comeback. Yes. Uh, that was such a hopeful moment. It's a beautiful moment, right? Oh, my God. You want to know something interesting about the comeback? There's a whole narrative around the comeback. 
that is, um, they're like, uh oh, I'm not hearing another one of these stories. Um, so there's a whole narrative around the comeback, which is extremely interesting. I think it's clear to Elvis that his migration toward whiteness was not in his interest. Might have been in his economic interest, but in his life interest, it was not. Feeling, it didn't make him feel cool. Elvis felt coolest when he did, you know, King Creole, when he was doing black music, when he was seen that way, when he was lighting every living room on fire because, you know, white America thought he was unleashing black sexuality into their <laughs> living room. Like, if you're that guy, you're gonna feel pretty cool. If you're X years later stuffed into some white jumpsuit. So the interesting thing about the comeback special is he dresses in black leather, like he's trying to get back to black. And he did this also within the ghetto where you can tell he's aware when I'm good, it's when I'm re-plugged in to that which made me beautiful and enduring. And Greel Marcus is so interesting. When I interviewed Greel in the film, he's the fellow who keeps talking about Herman Melville and Moby Dick. And he's on this Moby Dick kick. And I love Moby Dick. So I started asking him more and more about it. We spent the whole time, my crew was like, I think they're still talking about Moby Dick. I don't know what's going on in there. So hours later, we're like out at, in the Pacific Ocean. And I said to him at one point, he does the whole thing about, you know, he beats him on Ed Sullivan, he beats Moby Dick on the Ed Sullivan show. Then he does a thing how he's in the middle of the comeback special, he grabs the harpoon, the, the microphone stand like a harpoon. The part that's not in the film is the way Greel closed that argument. And a lot of times you take some of your best stuff out of films. It's, I could explain it, but it's, it's a puzzle. And sometimes they don't, they don't survive. And the thing that he said that was so amazing was, he said to me, he goes, he goes, you know, I know you love that uh, closing concert with Unchained Melody. He goes, it's, it's incredible, right? It's heartbreaking. He says, but look at him up there. He said, I mean, just look at him. He's become Moby Dick, he said. He said he's this giant, bloated uh, whale of a man stuffed into this white jumpsuit. He's sweating profusely. He's wobbling. He's listing around the stage, breaching, and then coming over in like a beached leviathan. He said, he's Moby Dick. And I'd had a lot of coffee that day. We were in San Francisco, and I said to him, I was sensing a mixed metaphor. I said, whoa, 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 Grill, let me get this straight. Just a couple of minutes ago, you said he was Captain Ahab. Now all of a sudden he's Moby Dick. Which is it? Brilliant guy. He says, he's both. And we're watching him kill himself. So I can't watch the 68 comeback special in that lean black leather outfit without thinking of it in the grand trajectory of how Melville himself saw the white hand of God in that whale. And the issues of whiteness and blackness in Moby Dick are absolutely reflective in Elvis's life. Melville is one of the first American authors who puts a white man and a black man in a bed together. And the white man says in the morning that it was the greatest sleep he ever had. And he wakes with the black man's arm across him in an almost maternal, in an almost you know, marital embrace. So A, it's also sexually revolutionary what he did, but it was definitely racially revolutionary. And I saw that tension very primally in Elvis. Thank you all so very much for coming. I'll be outside. I don't want to keep everybody all night. If, uh, if you like the film, tell your local theater to pick it up because it's leaving IFC and we want to find a new home for it. So if you know any movie theaters in New York, we want to keep it running because I think it's a film that takes time for people to tell their friends about and grow. And that's the one thing that's in shortage these days. So 
we need all the help we can get to get it viewed. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much for this Thank amazing film. Thank you very much film. for having me. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more from the DGA's documentary series screenings, check out episode 147, which features director Lauren Greenfield discussing her documentary, Generation Wealth, with director Marina Zenovich. You can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.